Good morning, beloved. Ah, we take away the AC and I don't get much of a response. Oh, I see how that is. There we go. <laughs> uh, we, will, we will be short. Um, if you have your copy of scripture, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We will be in the same text that we've been in for a few weeks. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And if you can multitask, which I know is a misnomer, but take a moment and call to mind the most awe-inspiring thing that you can think of. The most awe-inspiring thing that you can imagine. Did a Google search this week. You know that's dangerous. But I did a Google search, just like, what does Google come up with if I search for awe-inspiring? And there are some articles that, you know, it caters to the things that you typically want to look for and things like that. But um, I found it fascinating that amongst the top results was none other than Skechers, the sneaker brand. And I thought, hmm, I can appreciate some sneakers, but awe-inspiring is not what I would think of when I think of Skechers. No knock on the company, but it's just fascinating. And so that led me down a rabbit hole. You know, America has this weird fascination with sneakers, and that's not a bad thing. I, I enjoy sneakers, but um, it's an obsession for many. Like, um, maybe you have sought to, to acquire some of the, the hard-to-find or hard-to-acquire brands, um, maybe like the Jordans or the Grinch Adidas. You remember those? When that was a hot thing? No? We've got to be far more cultured, guys. <laughs> Kanye's Yeezys, yeah? No? Uh, well, one of my favorites, the Sasquatch Crocs. Did anyone have the Sasquatch Crocs? No? Wow. I am so disappointed with us. Uh, anyway, um, this is, whether we know it or not, this is an $80 billion a year industry right now in this country. $80 billion that started with this guy, the co-founder of Nike, Bill Bowerman. He was a track and field coach. And He's looking at the footwear of his athletes and trying to help them improve. And he's like, the grip is just, this is not working, the shoes they're wearing. And so he sets out to create a better shoe for athletes. And so, you know, like any normal human being, he takes rubber and a waffle iron. And he uses a waffle iron to actually get that kind of iconic grip that's on Nike shoes, the little square patterns and so forth. And so waffle iron meets tennis shoe. That's, that's how this all launches. And here we are today with an 80 billion plus dollar industry. It's amazing. It's awe-inspiring to think that it all started with that, with this track and field coach and his waffle iron and some rubber. But awe-inspiring is something that I think we actually miss out on a lot. Because in a day when we have more information available to explain more things than we could possibly take in, let alone comprehend, have we lost our real sense of awe? Or in a time when we carry these devices on our person all day long that can bring us face to face with images and videos of places, people, and things that we never could dream up on our own, have we actually lost a real sense of awe? I fear that we have. And what if it's, what if it's a sense of awe that actually incites fear and reverence? That it's not just a, oh, that's cool, scroll, 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 scroll oh, that's cool, scroll, 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 scroll. But to actually be awestruck in a moment where it forces you to stop and to be lost in wonder. And for that wonder to be marked by fear and reverence. Do we have that kind of an awe? 
As we continue this series, Devoted, um, we've been spending, um, this is not normal for us, usually we move through a book of the Bible, but we're focused in for a few weeks on just this small snapshot of the early church found in Acts chapter two and saying, what should we as a church be devoted to? And we look at what the early church devoted themselves to. So if you will, in Acts chapter two, read with me, starting in verse 42. Remember, this is Luke recording a history, as a narrative of the early church, the spirit of God moving through the people of God to advance the gospel around the world. So verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So the early church devoting themselves to these things. Today, I would like us to focus in on verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. And so we start with the burning question, signs and wonders? Huh. What were these signs and wonders? And we don't know exactly what this particular verse is referring to, but as we read the whole of the book of Acts, we get a pretty good idea. Here are some of the signs and wonders recorded through the book of Acts. So buckle up, here we go quickly. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit this person of God with the Father and the Son, the Spirit, a person of God, one God and yet three persons, the person of God, the Spirit, comes down like flaming tongues of fire and lands on the people of God. And they break out speaking in tongues, preaching, proclaiming the gospel. Numerous instances of speaking in tongues and prophesying show up throughout this book where people will either speak in another tongue that is known to man or not known to man. This happens um, across the book, also prophesying, where someone would get some kind of knowledge and word from God that they would then communicate to others. This shows up in Acts 2, 8, 10, and 19. There's the healing of a lame man by Peter and John, this super miraculous healing that takes place. This is in Acts chapter 3. Ananias and Sapphira, some believers, struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts chapter 5. There's this conversion and baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch because a believer in God is somehow transported to him. And miraculously, he's able to share the faith. This conversion and baptism is beautiful. It's supernatural. Would not have happened apart from God supernaturally saying, go here. And now he's there. You have the conversion of Saul, who we know more often as Paul, on the road to Damascus, where Jesus shows up in a blinding light that literally blinds him, knocks him off of his horse, and converts his heart God and a theophany showing up. Or the raising of Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, from the dead by Peter. That's in Acts chapter 9 as well. You have Peter's vision of the unclean animals and preaching to Cornelius, a Gentile. That's in Acts chapter 10. You have the angelic intervention to release Peter from prison in Acts chapter 12. You have a supernatural judgment on Herod Agrippa, who people are calling God. It results in his death. The angel strikes him. You have, that's, that's in Acts chapter 12. Now you have the blinding of Elimus, the sorcerer in Acts 13. You have Paul's deliverance from prison yet again by an earthquake in Acts 16. 
You have the casting out of a spirit of divination from a girl in Philippi in Acts 16. You have the conversion of Lydia, a, purple, a, a seller of purple fabrics. That's in Acts 16. You have Paul healing the sick and casting out demons in Ephesus in Acts 19. You have Paul raising a young man, Eutychus, back to life after he preached such a long, boring sermon that it put the poor guy to sleep and he fell out of an upper story room. Dead on the ground, Paul comes down, brings him back to life. That's in Acts 20. Paul shipwrecked, and he survives on the island of Malta. That's 27. And then Paul gets bit by a snake because things weren't bad enough yet. It's a poisonous snake. Everyone's around watching like, justice has come for him, and he doesn't die. He shakes it off into the fire. That's in Acts 28. And then finally, Paul heals the the father of Publius, the chief official of Malta in Acts 28. From start to finish in this book, there are things that we would say, that does not make sense but it almost seems normal in this book. Like we come to expect it. Like, well, of course, you preached a long sermon and that poor kid fell asleep and died and you just bring him back to life. Of course, you get bit by a poisonous snake and just shake it off and here we go, like a Taylor Swift song. Like, how does this happen? How does this keep happening? And a more burning question is, is that for today? Are these signs and wonders for today? Is it still happening today? And I want to humbly submit to you, yes. But I want to do that with humility to say, there are many, many, many devout Christians throughout our history who would come to very different conclusions on this. And they genuinely love the Lord. And so this should not cause division. But as I have studied the scriptures, I believe that yes, God still absolutely works in this way today. But it is God who works in this way. It is not up to Kevin to decide, hey, I want to heal you. You know, I shared that story about Tim. He's here this week, so we'll embarrass him now. But I shared that story about how I prayed for Tim and his headaches to go away. And then 30 minutes later, he texts me and says, now it's a full-blown migraine. I said, what do we do with that? That I prayed for healing, and the very opposite happens. And for the answer to that, I would point you to last week's sermon. (laughs) But the point now is, we don't get to decide these things. We should be in step with the Spirit. We should be seeking these things, but it is God, the Spirit, who empowers them. It is God, the Spirit, who moves through us when he so chooses. And he does that for the building up of the church. And remember, we don't always understand the ways of God. And yet, I would say with confidence, but with humility from the scriptures, yes, God still does work in this way today. And so we should seek after these things. We should seek to do them in accordance with the word of God, submitting to him, but desiring for him to show up in ways that leave us awestruck with a sense of wonder that we would stop and say, only God, only God could do this. These signs and wonders do still happen today. It is by the spirit and it is for the building up of the church. These signs and wonders, they do this. They build us up. And you know, the foundation we have is the gospel. It's the word of Christ that we stand on the firm foundation of him. His gospel is at the heart of everything that we do. We say we're a gospel-centered church. And so I want you to see how the signs and the wonders, they build up the church by God the Spirit, imparting these gifts, this charisma. And yet, as it does that, all of it is pointing to the gospel. Because the gospel is this good news that this is not the end. We have messed up. We are broken, rebellious, sinful creatures who have fallen. And yet there's a God who in love and grace says, I choose you. You're mine. I will save you. I have saved you, I am saving you, and I will save you. 
He will finish what he began on that day. And so this good news that we are held by God, and then he gives us these beautiful gifts to say, look, it's true. It points to this gospel. You can see that clearly and logically in the fact that, you know, we talked about Eutychus falling out of a window because Pastor Paul preached too long. And then he raises him from the dead. Have any of you met Eutychus? No. Listen, if Eutychus was alive right now, you better believe he'd be on tour going to every church possible because we'd all be like, you gotta come here, we gotta hear this story. How bad was that sermon, bro? But Dorcas, Tabitha, have any of you met her? Yeah, she was raised from the dead. The point being, they were brought back from the dead. Like, that's kind of top of the list for me of supernatural things that can happen. And yet, they died. They're not with us now. And so, these supernatural things, these, these things that would point to something else, they're pointing us to a greater reality that is to come, that when someone is healed, and yet, then they fall sick again, or they die. Or when someone hears a word from God and is able to humbly communicate that to someone else. Not to say, like, thus saith the Lord, but more like in humility, we'd say, I think that God wants me to share this with you. It's just burning in my heart and mind, and I feel like it aligns with Scripture, and I want to share it with you. And yet, the day is coming when there will be no more teachers. I will be out of a job, because God himself will be our teacher. We will all see him face to face. And so these things are pointing us forward to the greatest fulfillment of the kingdom of God coming. It has come, and yet it is coming in its fruition one day. And so we're pointed forward by these things. The kingdom of God has truly come. The fullness is coming. And so we must believe the gospel, but we pursue these things because of the gospel, because of this good news that God still loves us despite us in our sinful state. He has grace and mercy and says, I choose you. And so how did he do this? by taking on human flesh, that Jesus, the Son of God, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, he comes and he takes on human flesh. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And then he lives a sinless life. He does not break the law. He does not rebel against God the Father. He instead is the perfect final example of what a human should be. He is the ultimate substitute that we don't need another goat or lamb or bull to sacrifice. We have the lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, the final for all sacrifice, that when he died, his blood was shed to cover us. Atonement means covering. That is what his blood has done. It has covered us. His sacrifice is what the father sees when he sees Kevin. He no longer sees wretched Kevin who struggles and fails every single day in my sin. He instead sees the perfection of Jesus, his son, the perfection of God himself. His righteousness has been given to me to cover me, this atonement, which in English we could say is at-one-ment, that I've been brought together with God, that I'm united with him. This union with Christ is my salvation, that God the Father sees God the Son and says, he's mine, holy and beloved, he is mine freed from sin and death to enjoy the fellowship of God and holding to the promise of what is to come, that this is not the end. Dr. Tim Keller, if you've been around for any length of time, know how influential he is on me. He passed away this week. And I love one of my favorite quotes from him is him summarizing the gospel and he says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel 
is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so if that is the gospel, what is an appropriate response to this good news? What is an appropriate response to this gospel that God has saved us in grace if we are more loved than we ever dared hope? This is how Paul put it in Romans chapter 12. And you need to understand some context here. Romans is this very long theological treatise on the gospel um, and ultimately serves to be a fundraising letter. But Paul is unpacking the gospel and he does so extensively. And so the first 11 chapters is Paul basically saying, everyone is broken, everyone is flawed, but God is gracious and merciful. And this is how he saves us, by grace through faith. It's only by grace through faith. You must see, this is the sovereign work of God. And we just respond to that in belief confessing him as Lord, turning from our sin, believing he died and he rose again. The promise of scripture is if we confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so he's unpacked the gospel. It's so beautiful for 11 chapters. And now you get to chapter 12 and it starts and he says this, therefore, so in view of all of that, because of all of that, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. What is true worship? What is a true right response to the gospel? Our life. It is life in response to the gospel. The worship is the appropriate response to the gospel. And what is worship? Worship is all of life in response to the gospel. Worship is not just us coming here and raising our voice and singing or because the pastors say that we move into a time of giving, this is an act of worship, so I guess giving is an act of worship or hey, we're gonna take communion, this is an act of worship. Like no, worship is not just these things. Worship is actually all of life in response to the gospel. It's all of life in praise, obedience and holiness. It's living in light of who God is. It's living in awe of him to be in awe. Like the early church, everyone was filled with awe. And as we're filled with awe, if you've been in a moment where you were actually genuinely filled with awe, overcome with wonder, that reshapes everything. You can do nothing else in that moment except through the lens of what that is. That sense of wonder and awe will shape everything you see and everything you do. And so we must see the gospel and then live a life in awe in response to that in praise. Yes, those times of worship that is vocalized in shouts or singing, confessions, all these things. It's obedience that Jesus said, turn from your sin. And so the gospel is, yes, we have messed up and we're trusting him for salvation, but now we live holy because he has called us holy. And so we kill our sin, we fight our sin, and we obey the commands of Jesus. We live in obedience. It's holiness. So we do this because we're in awe of him. That there is no one like him. That we get chased after so many things, but they fail us. Like in Jeremiah, they're empty cisterns. That there's this big carved out thing, this hole in the rock that we're supposed to fill with water and have water available for us. And yet it's a broken thing there's cracks in it and the water is just constantly seeping out. So we pour into it, we pour into it, we pour into it and it's just constantly draining out. That God alone will truly satisfy. So we lost in wonder of him. And you see the connection that Luke made in the book of Acts, tying together 
of this reference to the many signs and wonders performed with the apostles is awe. Everyone is in awe. It's the same sentence. And you ask, what does awe do? You're saying that it reshapes everything? How can it do that? Marshall Siegel, he said it like this. He said that awe overwhelms the mind to get to the heart. The, The things that God does that blow our mind and say, that doesn't make sense. I can't understand that. Maybe it makes us afraid of it, want to run away from it. Maybe it makes us drawn in. Whatever it does, what it should do is go beyond the mind, overwhelming the mind, and then sink into our heart and change us. The heart is the causal seat of all of our affection, all of our decision-making, all of our being. It's not just this organ that pumps blood. It's in Scripture. It's a reference to your very being, that everything you are, that when we see the grandeur of God, we're overwhelmed with a sense of awe, It should not just be like, that doesn't make sense cognitively. It should sink beyond that and come to the very core of our being. This is how we live a life of worship in response. It's not actually about the signs and wonders. As much as we should pursue these gifts and seek to see God in these supernatural ways, it's God who is the point. It's the one behind them, the one who's working through them, who's empowering all of that. And so we must enjoy God himself more than just the gifts of God. This applies to spiritual gifts, but to anything that we have. We must see beyond the gift to the giver to see God himself, that he is glorified, and that is what builds us up. It is God himself. That's the totality of the gospel. It's always God at the center. That God is at the center of this. What is true is only enabled by God. He is the one who does it. Just like these signs and wonders are gifts and powers, we said they're empowered by the Holy Spirit who gives gifts as he sees fit. In the same way, worship is only enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not by us trying harder that we should keep in step with God. It is his power that will accomplish this. And we see this in the words of Jesus when he is famously at the the well with the Samaritan woman and he's having this conversation that just goes against all the cultural norms of the day. He's showing such great dignity and value to this female that he would have a conversation with her and the theological one at that. But he tells her towards the end of their conversation, he says, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. How amazing is that? That we could only ever worship God appropriately by God enabling our worship. We should be in awe of that. A God who loves us that much and loves himself that much and that is actually for our good. So let's be a church devoted to worship. Let's devote ourselves to worship, a life in response to the gospel, to be in awe constantly. And as we do that, there's a balance that I think we need to hold. Just pastorally, I would call us into this, that we must hold this balance in our view of worship. One, worship is centered on God not man. Worship is centered on God and not man. We should not expect and qualify worship, so to speak, as just these moments of emotional just outpouring and being overwhelmed in the body. That is not worship. can be. But we cannot define worship as just that. When we just come together and raise our voices and we have these experiences, oh, the worship was good today. No, 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 no. That's a very elementary learning of worship. Worship is all of life, and God is at the center of that. So what if we come here, Christian, what if you come here, and nothing about our gathering just really resonates with you to the core? 
You don't have any moment where you're just stirred up inside of you and you you get that tingling feeling up your spine because they hit the G note or whatever it is. And you walk away saying, ah, church wasn't that good today. Maybe you don't vocalize that, but that's what you think. And Pastor Kevin, he didn't put enough time into that sermon. It wasn't engaging enough. No, like, big aha moments. That's to totally miss what worship is. God is at the center of worship, not man. And so maybe we'll have long periods of life in the wilderness or the dark night of the soul as the ancient St. John of the Cross said, where life is just hard. And like the psalmist, you say, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me forever? And what do we do? Like that song Jesse led us in, we continue to praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forever. In good moments when I feel him and he's clearly present and in moments when it feels like he has alienated me and he's so far from me, I will still bless the Lord. You can be like Job. When everything is taken from you, he refuses to curse God, but instead praises him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord. God is at the center of worship. But at the same time, that we, we, we realize that worship is more than just those, those moments of being overwhelmed and grandeur and awe and all that stuff. It's more than that. And yet we should seek after those things. It is good and right to want to be overwhelmed by God. That when we encounter him, we should want him to overwhelm us with a sense of calm, of peace, of excitement, of great joy, ecstasy, all these things. We should want that. And we should actually posture ourselves to receive those moments, to be in those moments. Have intentional moments of waiting for God, of hoping for God, asking him to encounter us in such a way that it goes beyond logic to come and experience him, to praise him. And that's why we do these things weekly. That God does not need us to raise our voice and try to all be on key together. I contribute negatively to that. And yet he still wants me to sing to him. He still wants us to do that. And we should still want to do that. We should still come praying and pouring our hearts out, wanting and expecting to hear from God. We should still come celebrating. Even when life is hard, we come celebrating the good news, the gospel. Even when it was an awful week, we come here. We long to encounter him. And he wants that. But he is a person. So we pursue it to be in wonder, to be in awe. And here, lastly, I think often we miss that because we won't give it the time it deserves. We are such a frantic-paced culture that's it's instant. Um, Andy Crouch is this researcher who talks about the magic button. And we think about, you know, 100 years ago, if you could have a magic button to accomplish whatever you wanted, what would you ask for? And this is more domestic life, like, ah, man, if, if I could just have hot water... Like immediately, that'd be amazing. Like imagine what cooking, cleaning would be like if we just had hot water available, the push of a button. If I had this magic thing that could just like make the house cool off, like, are you with me? (laughs) Like all these things that we think of as like just a century or two ago would be like, that would be magical. And in today's world, like, well, that's normal. What we take for granted. But still the things that we think of that would make for magic are like, instantaneous. And so what I'm saying is, at the heart of our desire for what is supernatural is instant. We want it now on our timeline. And that is not the way it works with God. 
How often are we told to wait for the Lord? And I fear that we miss out on so many of these things because we just won't take the time. Because we want instant results. We want constant, immediate satisfaction and gratification. But if we wait for the Lord, because when you are truly awestruck, when you're lost in wonder, it requires you to stop. And so maybe we would be back to a place of a real sense of awe if we would use the other side of that and say, well, I'm going to stop. Um, I'll close with this. There's, a, there's an old pastor who meets with me on a monthly basis. And he meets with a group of us pastors. and um, I, won't, I won't share his name, but I, I just have to confess the, the sin and arrogance of my heart that he used to drive me nuts. I've told many of you this story, but he used to drive me insane because every time it's the same group of guys getting together. But we'd start off by just checking in like, if anyone happened to be new there, like you'd share your name and stuff. But this guy, regardless of knowing, we've all met each other, like a lot of times, he'd always start off by introducing, introducing himself. He'd say his name, say what ministry he's a part of and what they do. And it was like his three minute little spiel. And like, this is who I am, this is what I do. And every time I was just like, come on, we've got things we've got to get done here. Like, we know who you are. You don't have to do this every time. But one day he comes in and he starts off. So I'm already frustrated. I'm not having the best of days. He starts off with this long introduction, like, we know, like, come on, let's keep moving. But instead of ending after saying who he is and what he does, he gets emotional and just starts pouring out how he had lost his best friend that week, just, and, and just a whole litany of things that were going wrong in his life. And he's emotional and tearing up, and you may not know this about me, but I make excessive eye contact, and he knows that, and he has locked in on me. And the entire time, for more than 10 minutes, as he's just pouring his heart out, he won't look away. And I can't look away. And I'm so convicted in that moment. I think, this guy just wants me to be present. And I am so desperate to just move on and get things done. And he just wants me to be here with him. And that very same day, he shares with me about how he starts his morning in a time of prayer and the word. And he says, I sit down and I open my Bible and I start to read and I start to pray and I won't leave until God shows up. And my cynical mind is going a million miles an hour. What does that mean? What? what, what? (laughs) But he's just emphatic. Sometimes it's 20 minutes. Sometimes it's three hours where he says he refuses to get up and start his day until he meets the Lord. I'm just like, I didn't have two minutes for you to give an introduction today, let alone 15 minutes for you to share all of life's struggles and heartaches right now. And yet I so desperately needed you to say that, to tell me to stop running frantically and wait for the Lord, to truly be in awe, to be a people filled with awe. Let's slow down. Spend an inordinate amount of time with God, listening to him speak to you, praying and listening for the spirit. And maybe we'll see more. God wants you in this moment with him. Will you be there with him? To see him, to be in awe of him, to be right with him by his grace and through his faith because that's the kind of God he is, that he calls you beloved. So if you struggle to believe this, I would ask, will you believe it? 
And if you believe it, who can you share it with? That there's a God who wants us like that. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your love. That you would send your son, that this would all be according to your eternal decrees, that you would save us, you would purchase us back to be your people. And Jesus, that you would be willing and obedient, humbling yourself to the point of death so that we could be bought back. Spirit, that you would be with us now, sanctifying us, leading us into conformity to the image of the Son, giving us gifts. I say, God, would you make us a church filled with awe and would you help us to slow down, to be devoted to worship, that that's a life and response to your gospel. And we will let you be at the center of it instead of us with our agendas. So give us grace and patience and humility to pursue you all the more. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.